0: You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. Gordon started college at MIT in the 1970s. If you'd asked her what career she might pursue, high school math teacher is probably the answer she would have given. Four decades later, Eileen is the recently retired CEO of Ingredion, a Fortune 500 company. Now, keep in mind that as of the 2019 Fortune 500 listing, only 6.6% of those top revenue companies have a female CEO, and that's an all-time high. In other words, Eileen Gordon found exceptional success on a path that had far fewer female role models than the future she originally pictured for herself. To hear her tell it, that shift in horizon all started while she was at MIT.
1: In the 70s or 60s, women didn't do math. But at MIT, it was actually cool. But when I came to MIT, I lived in an all female dorm at McCormick Hall. I met all these wonderful women who wanted to be PhDs and doctors and lawyers, and I realized I could be anything I wanted to be.
0: After graduating, Eileen got her master's degree in management from MIT Sloan, where she was just one of 20 women in the 1976 class, spent a few years in consulting, and then began working her way up in the manufacturing and packaging industries. In 2009, she was hired as CEO of what was then called Corn Products International, Now, Ingredion. Under her leadership, the century-old Illinois-based ingredient company saw enormous growth by expanding its strategy and transforming its culture. In spring 2019, less than a year after her retirement from Ingredion, Eileen spoke with Slice of MIT during a visit to MIT Sloan. In this interview, we talk about how she distinguished herself as a business leader, what she looks for in the younger professionals she now mentors and what exactly this post-CEO chapter in her life will be like. Given that, as she points out, retirement doesn't necessarily mean your personality changes. After you hear her talk about her career, you won't be surprised to know her plate is still very full. Maybe we could start by talking about your definition of successful leadership but not just how you think about it now, how you've thought about it at different stages uh, in your life going all the way back to MIT and then throughout your career. Yeah,
1: you know, I started my career as a consultant. So when you're a consultant, what leadership is, is all about your analysis and the recommendations you're making to the client. So really what you want to be is you want to be part of a team. Uh, You want to be presenting your analysis. Uh, You want to convince the client to follow recommendations. That's how you measure uh, your impact, and a leader will be able to have impact. So that theme really follows itself when you go to the corporate world. And I had a long career in the corporate world, and so their leadership is really about leading organization, and how you measure your impact is really on the size and the scope of the organization. So people will say, well, I was leading a $2 billion company uh, in revenues. Or they may say, my market cap is $6 billion. So I was leading corn products, which became Ingredion. When I started, it was $4 billion in revenues. We did a big acquisition. We became a $6 billion company. So then we became part of the Fortune 500. And to be in the Fortune 500, you have to be at about the $5 billion mark, five or six. And that was really a true um, measure of uh, globalness and important um, impact. I used to say, I want to lead an organization that's a Fortune 500 company. And I got there. Um, and not exactly the route I thought I would get there, but I was. it was all about leading people, being enthusiastic, having measurements, um, and really defining it by the scope and people define it very differently. But being a leader is, it's all about having impact. So today, I sit on several boards. And how you measure leadership on a board is really creating value for your shareholders. Because you as a board member are representing the independent shareholders. And so your job is to create value for the company. Uh, Leadership really changes depending on how you're measured, but it is all about, in the end, creating value for whatever you're focusing on.
0: So it sounds like it changed a lot because of your role in the sphere in which you were moving. Were there other factors that shaped how you thought about leadership, uh, either ideas or people you were exposed to at MIT or during your career? Uh, uh, one thing I was known for and
1: was very important to me at MIT especially was the analytics. You know, I was a young woman in the 70s and a math major and very analytical. And I was very determined to be the best that I could be and wanted to excel in that area. And so it evolved, I evolved into being a leader with an analytical focus. And I th- actually think that that's a key to success, especially for women, having the analytics. Because in the 70s or 60s, women didn't do math. But at MIT, it was actually cool. In fact, I tell a lot of people that when I went to school in the 70s and came to MIT, I thought I would be a high school math teacher, because that was the role model. That's all we knew about. But When I came to MIT, I lived in an all-female dorm at McCormick Hall. But I met all these wonderful women who wanted to be PhDs and doctors and lawyers. And I realized I could be anything I wanted to be. So that was the role model. And I said I could use my analytics, and I love problem solving. So that led me to business. And so throughout my business career, I, was, I could be the best analyst. I could lead other people and make an impact by using my analytical ability.
0: Do you think that the imbalance that I'm assuming you often encountered in the classroom and then in you know, boardrooms throughout your career between the number of men and women who were around the table, do you think that changed the choices you made or the choices that were available to you?
1: Well, early on, uh, it seemed to limit my choices. But when I realized, being an MIT student, that there were no limits, uh, it actually propelled me to be even better. So the imbalance, when I was an undergrad at MIT in the 70s, graduate and undergraduate, the ratio was 18 to 1. My class of undergrads, it was 10 to 1. But it propelled me to want to be the best, to be equal footing with with the boys. And so it uh, it really opened up my choices by at M- being at MIT, knowing I could be in business. I could be in problem solving. I can be the best that I could be. And there were no limitations. And it was a matter of having high goals. And so during my career, I met people who mentored me who actually encouraged those goals. And to me,
0: that made all the difference in the world. So do you think that being uh, a female leader in a field that didn't have a lot of female leaders actually made you stand out or distinguish um, you, you know way? absolutely no
1: it, it's interesting because I went into the manufacturing field and I would say I was called myself a pioneer so I was a pioneer in the manufacturing industry there were plenty of women in banking there were women in the food industry in brand management more traditional but I wanted to go where I would be unique and be a pioneer so i went into manufacturing where there were no no women in the paper industry and i would visit facilities i'd visit factories in my safety shoes and i was trying to learn i'm a very inquisitive person and i would go meet people and i would want to be personable and ask them about what they were doing and how they were making a difference and then i would synthesize all that learning and then I would take that back to my team and talk about what I learned at doing that. So I would say my gender, I used it to my advantage all those years. Uh, and it wasn't easy, but you had to be, I had a strong personality. Sometimes people tried to say, no, 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 you can't go in there. You know, there's no women allowed in there. And I'd say, what? When I went to MIT, there were no women's rooms on the first floor. And we said, no, we got to change that. And People said, fine. You just needed somebody to say that. So it wasn't about having a battle or embarrassing anybody. It was about making change for positive for everybody. And so we had the energy to push ahead and say we're gonna make that change.
0: You clearly have a lot of expertise in thinking about, on the corporate level, a company's identity, how you brand it, how you you know you repositioned Ingridion in a major way. I'm, I'm curious if some of the concepts that apply to that also apply to the way you've thought about branding or presenting yourself as a leader?
1: Well absolutely. Um, as I said I've always stood for somebody um, who's very analytical. So the first thing that every job I walk into I would say look we're gonna make decisions based on facts. Facts mean you need to do analysis. So if somebody came in and said well I feel we should do this I'd say well what is that based on? What's the size of the market? What's our competitive position? How are we gonna grow it? What's our investment plan? If you don't have your homework done, leave and come back when it's done. So I would say that my brand was always known to be fact-based, which means that you're not emotional and you're very fair. It's all about meritocracy. It's about smart people doing their work. Two, I developed um, an affinity for safety. It's all about setting the culture from the top and saying safety is very important. We want people to go home the way they came. And the third part of my brand was I was very big on what I call plan A and B. So my whole life to run my business and I had a family along the way, a great spouse, was always you have a plan that you want to embark on. That's great. But you know what? Things happen. So I became known for having, always having a backup plan, plan B and plan C. And somebody would say, well, our plan is we're going to invest in this facility. And I'd say, that's great. Well, what happens if there's something wrong with the soil? Um, So I'll give you an example. So we were building a facility in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we announced building the facility in an industrial park. And I went to go down and meet the people who are running the industrial park. And they said, oh, by the way, the facility across the street um, is going to be making a poisonous gas. Now, the wind is always blowing the other way, so don't worry about it. It's going to be fine right away. I did not want to read about people getting hurt in 20 years, even though I knew I wouldn't be leading the facility. So I said, we are going to move to a different facility, to a different street. And so I want to know what's open. So that was my plan B, which was, okay, stuff happens. All right, we made it. it, was, it wasn't a great decision. It's not too late. We haven't broken ground. And you're we not going to trust the wind. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I, because stuff happens. And so we moved several blo- blocks away, and the facility's still there today, and I don't lose any sleep about sulfuric acid blowing the other way.
0: I'm curious to know what your experience has been as a mentor and a, you know a role model as you've gotten to that point where now people are coming to you, asking you for advice, and what questions you get the most from young professionals, young women entering business, and also what questions you wish they would ask more, or you think um, people in that position should be asking.
1: So my first advice to people is, if somebody's gonna mentor you, it should be somebody who knows you, who knows your strengths and weaknesses, who will tell you the truth. And a lot of the people that I'm mentoring now that I knew in business, and many women who are trying to figure out how to have their career, and they have kids, So as an example, there was a woman at Ingridion who wrote me a note recently and said, she's been offered a career opportunity in another country and what did I think of it? And I thought about it and I said, you know what, I think it's a great opportunity. Now, it means that she and her spouse will have to move and her spouse is a professor and it's a big decision and probably she's getting a lot of pressure from her family to just go with the current. But I said, if you want to get ahead, This would be great for you. It will give you international experience. So when people ask me about being mentored, uh, many of them ask me about career moves and how to make it happen. And uh, what I do is I try to give advice to people, but I need them to be open-minded. So if somebody says, well, should I take this job and I'm going to move three offices down, I push them to be more bold. Because people did that to me. It's very easy to go with the status quo and to make other people happy around you. But I say you really have to stretch and get out of your comfort zone. I like to mentor people that are um, high energy, um, I say ambitious, that are willing to figure it out, that aren't looking for perfect lives. Nobody's life is perfect. Bad stuff happens to good people all the time. But when I hired people, I would ask them, tell me the worst thing that ever happened to you, and how did you snap back from it? Because I love to hear about how people are resilient and would take on that challenge because it makes them tougher because life is tough. So I want to mentor people uh, that are looking for challenges and opportunity, have resiliency, and they're not looking for the um, traditional path. Um, I tell people, one of the things I gave up is, I don't know if I've ever had a dinner party Who has time? You have your career, you have your kids, you have your travel, you have your family. So I never had a huge social life. I mean, today, my best friend is my sister. I have a college roommate I'm still friendly with. But friends to me are people, if I don't call them for six months, they're still my friend. The mentee has to be the proactive one, like, can we have lunch next week? And here's my list of questions. I used to call people that I mentored. Um, and I'd say, oh, gee, we're, it's once a quarter, it's our time. And they'd say, oh, of course. And I really wanted them to come back and say, no, I need more of your time, and, and these, this is my agenda.
0: I know you're busy, but could you make
1: time for me? That's what I want, I want people to, to chase after me.
0: Can you think of a time when a mentor pushed you in a way that felt maybe uncomfortable or you know, told you, no, you're not reaching high enough or you're you know, playing it too safe?
1: I once had a mentor at consulting, and I had done a a client presentation. I said, how did I do? She said, not so well. Let me tell you how you could do better. She said, tell a story, have presence up there. Think about your transitions. Think about this, 40 years later, I still remember this. She did me a huge favor, but she mentored me by not saying, you did a great job, or it was fine. She could have easily said it was fine and moved on. But instead, she said, you could do these three things better. And I then went off and thought about what she said. And I felt badly for about five minutes. But then I realized, this is really going to help me. I'm, I'm 24 years old. This is going to help me for the next 30, 40 years.
0: I have to ask you uh, about the international experience you know, that you mentioned, that that's a piece of advice you often give. So I'd love to know a little about your own international experience
1: it's very important to experience other cultures. Now, I'll give you the practical example, and then I'll talk about business. So, when people say, um, "I can't move, but I'll I'll go be in an airplane every week if you want me to," and I say, "You know what? It's not enough. You need to move there and do your laundry in a foreign country because you need to speak to people. Maybe it's English in London, maybe it's French in France. Um, but you need to put money in." and learn how to do your laundry not in your house because it takes you out of your comfort zone. I lived in London in the 70s with the Boston Consulting Group and I had to do my laundry down the street. It grew me a lot because I had to communicate with people and figure it out. Later on, um, after living in London and being in the packaging industry, I actually was based in France with a French company. And I was running the French packaging company globally from Paris and they had promised the French government that their leader would live in France. My family was back in Chicago. So I had an apartment in France, um, and I was spending a week a month there, and then another week a month I was, let's say, in Asia. And then maybe I was in Chicago for a week, and then I was somewhere else. But running a global packaging company. I actually went to Paris every month for 10 years. But I was based in France my last three years as head of the French company, we were making packaging uh, out of plastic film. What I learned was that every culture had their own norms and how they wanted their food to taste and how their packaging would help the food perform better. Um, you had to figure out how to put the package together in its opening and its closing for the consumer and how that consumer was going to use it. It sounds like the same package might work in a lot of different places, but the reality was it wouldn't. And if you went into that attitude, you would not be successful. And so with France, you might have a pull tab and be able to throw away the pull tab, but in Japan, they would be very upset about that. So you needed a package that would open, could be used and reclosed. So I would say that having that type of global experience was very important to me because it helped make me a better leader in one region versus another region by being exposed. And my, my final job, when I was a public company CEO of Corn Products, which we became Ingredion, we actually did business in 40 countries, and all very different. And I would learn about food ingredients, and food actually tastes different in every country because the water tastes different. How the crops are washed can affect the taste of the ingredients. So it was very important to have clean water, the appropriate ingredients. Some countries wanted non-genetically modified, They thought it was healthier. Others would say GMO was fine, genetically modified. So it was very different. So I would say that packaging experience was very helpful for me to understand different cultures so that today I can meet somebody from any country and I can have a conversation about their country, their culture, their challenges.
0: How many of those 40 countries did you visit? I should ask, how many did you do laundry in?
1: (laughs) Well, I lived only in a few of them, um, but I probably visited half of them. Um, but there were many smaller countries that I never got to. I would have liked to have, but I made a different set of, of visits. So as an example, I would go to China, and instead of meeting with the management team, I would ask to meet with everybody who joined the company in the, in, within two years. And the reason was that in China, people would change jobs for a 5% increase in salary. So we were losing people all the time. So I said, well, why don't I meet with them and find out What are their goals? And their goal was to develop their career. That became more important than the 5% more in salary. But if they felt you weren't weren't investing in them, then they would leave for more money. So you learn that in your travel, but you can only do that if you get out of your comfort zone and meet with different sets of people. You know, everybody thinks that you're going to walk into a facility and meet with the senior people. My goal was actually, I would visit facilities. I remember visiting one in Mexico. And I said, I'm going to shake hands with everybody at work today. I know people went home that night and they said, I met the boss. I shook her hand. She asked me about what I was doing to add value to the company. I made all my visits to be very meaningful. I actually knew that because my mother worked in retail. She actually worked in Boston at Filene's. And she used to say to me, when the boss came, and he would see she had a diamond on that day, which meant that she was a top salesperson, and he would shake hands with her she told me about it so to me it's all about when you visit a facility it's how do you interact with the people not just with the boss but the people who make make it happen which means that you have to smile um at the forklift driver the person who signs you in uh, the guard at the booth they're the ones who really run, running the business
0: before we wrap up I'd, I'd love to just ask you about the idea of retirement Uh, I know that you recently retired from Ingredion. Um, You still appear to be very busy. (laughs) And so I'm wondering, you know, what retirement means to you and if there are goals and things you'd like to do now that you couldn't do while you were working as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company that now you can pursue.
1: Sure. No, it's a good question. And um, my husband came up with the word rewired because retire sounds like you go off and you go play golf and I've not, uh, I think I've played golf once.
0: Any dinner parties? No. No, okay.
1: And uh, it's interesting, your personality doesn't change. So I think it's very important to have new chapters in your life. For me, I now have the opportunity to sit on boards of directors. Now I was sitting on boards before, but now I have even more time. And newly retired CEOs are the best board members because we, we were just a CEO two years ago We have a lot of advice. So an advice I'd love to give to CEOs is, um, I say don't gloat over a great great quarter because it's not a quarterly business. And don't apologize for a bad quarter. I'm doing some work in the nonprofits uh, where I'm helping organizations be all that they can be to add value to whatever their mission. It might be, as an example, uh, there's an organization in Chicago which is all about helping financially challenged children, get ready for school. And so how do you uh, achieve that mission? Uh, I help an organization in New York that is all about uh, an opinion poll. So it's a nonprofit. I'm giving speeches with my husband on success for dual career couples, which is, uh, I think it's an undiscussed topic people talk about women leaning in and companies doing what they should do. I think all of that's happening, but I don't think couples are leaning in enough together. And then I'm also trying to spend time with my children to make them successful. My son has an early stage investment company with my husband. My daughter has a real estate firm. And my son has two children, so I have two grandchildren. So I'm watching them and trying to give advice and spend time with them uh, and then have a little bit of time for travels. It's, uh, it's hard to sit still when you've been running for 40 years. I still keep my suitcase half-packed, that I did as a professional, because I never know where I'm gonna go. I woke up this morning in Fort Lauderdale, and here I'm in Boston. Tomorrow I'll be in Bethesda. I'll be in Chicago on Thursday night. But that's just the norm, that's how you operate. And so I'm a high-energy person, and I'm doing this right now, and you never know when it's gonna change.
0: Thanks to Eileen Gordon for sharing her story with us, and to you for listening to the Slice of MIT podcast. Tweet us your thoughts on this episode to at alumni. If you'd like to hear more stories from the MIT community, subscribe to the Slice of MIT podcast on iTunes and let us know what you think. Please rate the podcast and leave us a review. Also, check out our website at slice.mit.edu.